Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, this is Daniel Paris, host of the New Books and Finance channel, a channel of the New Books Network. I am pleased to have as my guest today, William Gale, the author of Fiscal Therapy, Curing America's Debt Addiction and Investing in the Future. Uh, Bill Gale is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and has spent a long time uh, thinking about, and it's obvious from the book, thinking about uh, the debt crisis that our country is facing and has come up with some pretty detailed prescriptions as to how we can try to manage them. Uh, Bill, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. You're, you're facing just an enormous challenge head on, but as a historian, I have to say one of the things that I like that you do is placing um, the debt crisis that the government uh, is, is uh, staring down in a historical context and, uh, as you say, you know, why it matters that we understand how the government's debt uh, emerged and, and why it's a problem. Could you kind of go over some of that background material that helps set the stage for, uh, you know, kind of uh, what you consider the main issues? Sure. One of the reasons I included a chapter on fiscal history is that I was hoping to look back over 200 plus years and you know, find the magic formula uh, for solving the the debt problem that we face. Uh, and then it turned out that uh, exactly the opposite occurred. The main lesson from our history is that the situation we face now is different than any situation we faced in the past. Uh, in the in the first two hundred years of the country. We only had rising debt during wars or recessions. And as soon as the war ended or the economy recovered, the debt came back down. So that there was a temporary spike and then it, it abated uh, after the, the initial uh, episode ended. Uh, then in, Ronald Reagan was elected and he cut taxes and raised military spending uh, in the early 80s, which caused uh, the debt to rise for the first time when we didn't have a war or a recession, uh, that led to a whole series of changes which controlled the problem for about 20 years. Uh, but then starting with George W. Bush uh, and then the Great Recession and then the recent tax cuts, uh, debt has just risen again. So the situation we face now is we have this sort of permanent imbalance, sort of a chronic imbalance between what people expect the government to spend and what people are willing to pay in taxes. And that that's sort of built in now to the budget. And that's different from any any episode we've had historically. So it's a, uh, it's a cause for concern in the sense that we've never had uh, permanent deficits uh, baked into the cake. One, one of the issues, again, I work in finance, so I, I touch upon this, but I'm also a historian, that uh, the the debt challenge that I see it was exacerbated by 
um, a phenomenon which I don't know, you know, how it plays in terms of government planning, because I don't know that they think about this in, in, in the same terms that I do. But we had interest rates declining from the um, very, very high levels, mid-teen levels in the uh, early 1980s. You'll remember Paul Volcker uh, conquering inflation and so forth. We've had interest rates decline for 35 years from that point to uh, the nadir in 2016. And uh, I, I don't know if this, you came across this or not, but during that period of declining interest rates, corporations, individuals, and I'm, I guess I'm asking whether governments felt unlike the other times that you reference in your history, that debt was good, fine, and manageable. Because every time interest rates decline, and if they decline over a 35-year period, your debt burden diminishes and you feel better about yourself. So I guess my question is, did declining interest, you said this time it's different because of the Reagan tax reforms, but is it also different because of this 35-year period of declining interest rate when everyone just naturally assumed they could take on more debt and handle it more easily? Or was that something that did not come up? That definitely comes up. Low interest rates, uh, which we're experiencing right now, are the one bright spot uh, on the in terms of the fiscal outlook. Uh, obviously, uh, interest rates uh, reduce the pressure on the government. Sorry, low interest rates reduce the pressure on the government uh, to cut spending or raise taxes because it reduces, uh, government interest payments. Uh, but I feel like in the last few years, uh, rather than capitalizing on low interest rates and a strong economy and putting into place, uh, policies that will reduce the long-term debt and deficits, policymakers have done the the opposite. They've basically taken a strong economy and low interest rates as a as an opportunity uh, to cut taxes and raise spending. So uh, the concern is that uh, we're sort of squandering the opportunity to fix things uh, while things are good. You know? Right. Right. So the the I don't know if again uh, before we get back to your business, I'll get one last question from my perspective. Curiously, I have found, and I'm hoping this is the case because it's well-timed with your book, though I think ill-timed for the temper of the times, and you deal with this extensively in the book, but I have observed in corporate America over the last 12 to 18 months, a change in sentiment in regard to debt. That is from the, uh, and your book is mostly about government deficits, but private sector corporate deficits and debt uh was viewed very benignly until about a year, year and a half ago. And there's been a real sentiment change that, hey, this debt thing isn't as good as we thought, and we have to actually start paying down our debts. Now, Washington is not the same thing as corporate America, but has there been any change in sentiment coincidental with your research in your book as to taking this challenge on, or is it still the, and we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but is it still the just uh, an intractable problem or has this uh, willingness to take on the problem gotten any better or worse or changed at all in the last 18 months? Because I can tell you it has in corporate America. I think the willingness to take on the problem in in the government uh, has gone down. Uh, the uh, What happens whenever uh, both houses in the White House uh, are controlled by the same party, deficits go up. 
And that's exactly mm-hmm. what happened the last couple of years. The Republicans cut taxes. Then the, the Congress uh, crafted a, a budget deal that raised spending. Uh, and that's a typical pattern you see, whether it's Kennedy, Johnson, Democrats in the 60s or Bush Republican in, in the 2000s uh, or President Obama in the first two years of his term when he had a Democratic Congress. Uh, and so so there's been a, a reduction in um, uh, concern about this uh, on the right. And I think on the left, you're seeing the rise of things like modern monetary theory where people are saying, well, look, you know, if the right's not going to focus on this, uh, why should we focus this on this on the left? So and printing press it out of existence. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, that <laughs> your book then is, uh, you know, uh, facing even a greater challenge as it were your arguments. Let's get to those prescriptions. Actually, before we get to those prescriptions, let's get to the, the utter enormity of the challenge, uh, which I think some of us in finance know that, boy, are we out over our skis in terms of, of, um, the debt. And you have great examples from around the world and throughout history as to, you know, uh, the size of these, these, uh, uh, obligations, but, you know, at the headline level, uh, they are eye popping. Do you want to share, share a couple, um, you know, uh, some, some of that? Sure. Let me, let me just throw out a couple of numbers out there, round numbers. Uh, the debt is currently about 80% as large as the economy. Uh, under relatively optimistic assumptions, it's headed to 180% as large as the economy in 2050, in 30 years from now. Uh, and um, I argue in the book that we should get it down to 60% of GDP, from right, 180 right. to 60. Uh, in order to do that, we would have to cut spending or raise taxes by about 4% of GDP a year. Uh, that's an enormous uh, shift. We're talking something like $800 billion a year in today's, today's dollars. And, uh, you know, it's, that's well beyond anything that's being discussed, uh, in the political system. It's, it's even, it's even, you know, several times larger than the tax cut we just had. And of course the tax cut raises the deficit rather than reducing the, the deficit. So, uh, Part of the problem, I think, with the fiscal outlook, part of the problem with getting politicians to deal with it is that when people are faced with a problem that's so big that they don't feel like they can solve it, I think there's a tendency to just ignore it. And Unfortunately, there's a standard that's been applied in terms of uh, environmental issues and climate change that it's hard for an individual or even a group of individuals to see what they could do to meaningfully change it and therefore the easiest uh, solution is to, from their perspective, is often to do nothing. That's right. And the, the fiscal situation bears a number of resemblances to the, to the climate change in that, that um, you know, you can look around and say, well, there's no problem right now, but you can sort of predict, given the way things are headed, that there will be a problem. But it's very difficult uh, to get the public to focus on the long-term issues because they have lives to lead and jobs and families. And it's very difficult to get politicians to focus on it because the last thing they want to do is uh, raise issues that they're not ready to, to solve. For which there's no simple answer. You, you point out that the, you know, at any given moment, from moment to moment, the size of the government debt doesn't create a problem. 
but uh, and and therefore it's not as you characterize it a wolves problem. It's more of a termites problem, which once the structure fails, it fails very rapidly. Do you want to discuss how, you know, the metaphor and then you know why this can't be put off? Uh, that it, it even though it appears to be benign for now, the Social Security fund is is solvent. The government can finance its debts, et cetera. But ha- the termites are are working busily and mm-hmm. and. How does that play out? Right. So my former colleague, Charlie Schultz, uh, described deficits as termites in the woodwork, not the wolf at the door. And what he meant and what I think I think he's right is uh, we're not facing a crisis. Uh, I think that sometimes sometimes people use that word too loosely. uh, And there's two problems with doing that in the fiscal situation. One is obviously we can pay our debts for decades to come. The question is whether it's a good idea. But the other is that talking about the crisis uh, implicitly suggests that the reason we should worry about the debt is that it it might create a crisis. And uh, I think we need to worry about the debt even if it doesn't create a crisis. There's a problem. It's just a gradual one not a sudden one. And the gradual problem is that rising debt will can can uh, uh, either crowd out investment or or force us to borrow more from overseas. Uh, but either way, once we do that, uh, uh, our future income uh, will not grow as fast as as it as it otherwise would have. And the, those effects, those cumulative effects uh, can be substantial, uh, even if there's no no crisis. And, uh, you know, the, all the more, um, in the, this large crisis, but not an imminent crisis, the political situation that you described was terribly depressing, um, that are, you know, the way our system set up and with the current allegiances and you, you do point out this has been a problem over the years, but uh, right now it seems particularly dire that the, a, a political a consensus in Washington, D.C. to do something about this just, just doesn't, doesn't appear to exist. You have a special chapter that deals with the, uh, you know, why Washington isn't, unfortunately, isn't likely to get this done on its own. Yeah, so solving the long-term fiscal problem is just about the hardest problem that the U.S. political system uh, will face. Uh, The biggest issue is the benefits are off in the future, and they're kind of diffuse. Uh, And so the people who will benefit, many of them can't vote yet. Many of them aren't even born yet. But the people who will bear the costs are you know living taxpayers and and uh so what happens is the people who bear the costs can identify themselves as as having costs and so they oppose the change whereas uh because the beneficiaries uh are are uh not really in the political system they don't really have a voice so um this a similar thing arises in climate change like if policies were made by our great grandchildren right now, uh, who obviously you know they don't exist, but if they could kind of spirit themselves here and make policies, they would make very different climate change policies than than we're making right right now. So on top of that, um, I mean the founding fathers deliberately designed the government 
to make it difficult to do big things. You needed a lot of consensus. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. um, public opinion, which is often an anchor uh, for politicians, uh, is hopelessly conflicted on this. Uh, I mean, the public, if you ask people, do you oppose rising debt and deficits, they'll say yes. And then if you ask them, well, do you oppose tax increases and spending cuts, which are needed to get to end the rising debt and deficits, they'll say yes. So if you're a politician, uh, how you frame this is really important. And and the public is not, you know, in a united front to, to do anything about this. Are, are, are the policy wonks like you on both sides of the aisle more in agreement? That is, can you do you have some common ground with people at AEI and, and Heritage or is it is it really uh, or do they share your concerns but are they or are they also just hopelessly divided like the rest of us so it's interesting there's uh, in a nutshell the book says we have this long-term deficit problem long-term debt problem and we need to have tax increases be a big part of the solution and so my friends at AEI and Heritage will say, well, you've got the problem right, long-term debt, <laughs> but you've got the solution wrong. And that uh-huh. they're, in their view, the solution is we should, we should cut spending. Uh, so they're okay with the first half of the book, not so much the second half. Right. Uh, on the left, uh, the argument is you've got a great solution, raising taxes on high-income households and boosting spending on kids and infrastructure and and stuff like that. So your solution is great, but deficits aren't really a problem to begin with. You know, they're Mm -hmm. sort of trying to to talk themselves into the fact that they can go ahead and enact big new spending initiatives uh, without paying for it. So uh, I've I've got something in common with both sides, but uh, uh, also some differences. Well, I think I think you've managed to alienate everyone. <laughs> Suggest to me that you're 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 doing well. Um, now, it, it, the all of this is basically uh, prelude to you know the very specific policy prescriptions, and this is really really tough. You've defined an enormous problem, and then you go step by step, category by category, silo by silo, with a very detailed prescription. And you know, there's a, a great deal of bravery there because you are pretty much tapping uh, everyone's uh, shibboleths and, uh, and and sacred cows and so forth. The first one is healthcare. And, you know, you have a very clearly stated opinion on, on uh, affordable care, on, on Medicare, but that, you know, the healthcare spending by the government is part of the problem. Therefore, it has to be part of the solution. You want to give us a kind of a, a summary version of, of how you would like to see that play out? Sure. Uh, healthcare is an enormous sector in the U.S. If it were, if if the healthcare sector were a separate country, if the healthcare sector in the U.S. were a separate country, it would be the fourth largest country in the world. So we're talking about a massive uh, uh, set of of uh, suppliers and demanders, and I I, um, I think there are two initiative two two goals here. One is to make sure that everybody has access to uh, decent care uh, that is increasing coverage. And the other is uh, uh, what people call bending the curve, reducing the growth rate of, of healthcare expenditures. And um, to focus on the second point, uh, this seems to me to be one of the few areas in the budget 
where it's possible, I won't say quite to get something for nothing, but to get a lot for a little bit in, in, in benefit losses. Uh, so for example, the way we pay medical providers tends to focus too much on the services they provide rather than the outcomes they generate. Uh, so there are programs to, there are initiatives that Medicare started to change the way we pay doctors and hospitals to encourage uh, economy of care. There's a very significant number of medical tests and procedures that are done that uh, do not appear to be justified based on you know scientific evidence, uh, which could be cut. And then there's a, this issue of drug pricing or drug costs. Medica- Medicare pays more for the same drugs than Medicaid or Veterans Affairs do uh, by a fairly sizable margin. And uh, if Medicare paid the same prices as Medicaid, uh, we could cut spending by a half a billion, uh, I'm sorry, a half a trillion dollars uh, over the next decade. So I think there are real savings to be had in healthcare uh, while at the same time uh, improving coverage and uh, possibly even improving the quality of care. Uh, you know, and, and sort of a, a political third rail, but, um, you know, you do, as I say, go through all the parts of Medicare and, and the, the, the price uh, challenges there. We are, I, I, in my day job, deal with this somewhat uh, in terms of drug pricing and the intermediaries, the PBMs and everything. And it, it is true that if you were setting up a system from scratch, you would never, ever set up the, uh, the, the system the way it is currently. It, there are gross inefficiencies there. Um, if, if healthcare, however, is a, um, uh, hard not to crack, uh, you know, the political third rail is, is social security and there you have very specific and logical, uh, I, I didn't disagree with a single, single, uh, well, I'm not going to say I didn't disagree with a single assertion. I did not disagree with, with, uh, I, if I disagreed with some of the assertions, they were not all of them and, and not significantly, that is, they made a lot of sense yet it almost seems perhaps changing the social security rules are, uh, it's among the most hopeless tasks one could face because it seems to be, you know, it started out as a modest, incremental, marginal program during uh, the Roosevelt administration has become something akin to a constitutional right in, in uh, society now. And it's just going to be very, very difficult to change those numbers. Yeah, Social Security, uh, on the one hand, it may well be the most successful program the government's ever run. Uh, on the other hand, it's not sustainable the way it is right now. And uh, if policymakers don't do anything else, they may, they make no changes. Uh, benefits will have to be cut by law by about 23, 25 percent, uh, starting in 2034. Uh, we can talk more about the specifics of Social Security, the, but the importance of uh, Social Security to the budget debate is both that Social Security is a big part of government spending, is 20% about, but also because of this trust fund exhaustion date, uh, it, it's sort of a hard constraint, whereas the rest of the deficit, the rest of the budget, uh, the government can always, the Congress can always put off one more day, one more week, one more month dealing with it. Problem will be a little worse, but they avoided annoying their constituents for, for that time period. 
with Social Security and with Medicare, uh, there are hard deadlines where the trust funds run out of money and therefore benefits have to be cut by law. And that, that you know, nobody, nobody wants to see that as the outcome, I don't think, but, but that could well force action both on those initiatives and on the bigger uh, budget issue. Well, let's let's hope that's the case. So, the you know, healthcare and social security, you might in reforming them and and social security, you might characterize as as uh, sticks. There's some degree of carrot though that you put in. You at the same time that you're trying to reduce expenditures, you're also trying to increase investment. And a lot of people I uh, deal with popularly may not get the difference between consumption and investment and kind of broad definitions of investment like early childhood education and so forth. But you have a section where, you know, you kind of round out the the cost cutting with areas where you think it would benefit our society and the economy and ultimately the long-term balance sheet of society by increasing investments or at least protecting them both in, in people and in, in uh, you know, government projects. Uh, you want to discuss that a bit? Yes. Yeah, so let me, so let me take a step back. The, there are sort of two themes to the book. One is the problems of rising debt, and the other is the problems of lagging uh, investment, investment in yeah. in key areas. And uh, uh, the basic idea is that fiscal adjustments are going to be necessary because of the debt, uh, but we can use them as an opportunity uh, to fix other aspects of society and uh, investment in children, investment in infrastructure, uh, R&D. Uh, when you look at the numbers and read the studies of that, it's clear that more investment uh, in those areas would be effective uh, for society in all sorts of ways, not just the straight economic, uh, you know, people are more productive, they'll earn higher wages, but uh, uh, all that is kind of ancillary effects and better neighborhoods, lower crime rates, uh, better health, better mental health. Uh, there's a variety of studies uh, of these government uh, initiative, government uh, safety net programs that that suggest they have very broad effects and they, they should be thought of as investments uh, in in human capital uh, rather than just government spending. Which is, I think, uh, back to the politics section, um, you know, half the population agrees with you, but the other half, unfortunately, doesn't. And so that's, I mean, that almost applies to each of these categories. But uh, uh, again, that difference between investment and the kind of ex- versus expenditure or consumption is is uh, lost on a lot of people. Well, this is something that I think uh, analysts on the right and left do ag- agree on, that we that we need to reorient uh, government spending from uh, consumption to investment, uh, and this will, you know, investment it will literally and figuratively pay dividends uh, in the future. Now there can be debates about what the right area to invest in, but I think if there's a single area where uh, people agree on most, it's that we need uh, more infrastructure uh, investment. We need to renew our existing infrastructure and build new infrastructure for the, the 21st century. So let's, let's shift to, uh, the revenue raising, not just the savings, but the revenue raising. And again, here it's, it's a political landmine, uh, but, uh, taxes on, on people and taxes on business. You've, you've got some, some harsh medicine. Uh, and I, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, 
but you know the, the numbers are what they are. And uh, you want to kind of pro- provide some highlights on that? Sure. Uh, if you look at the fiscal outlook, uh, you know we've already got a problem with existing programs. Uh, if we try to invest more in kids and infrastructure, that makes the problem bigger. Uh, we can save some money in Social Security and Medicare, uh, but ultimately we are going to have to raise taxes. Uh, the arithmetic is is overwhelming. And if we're going to raise taxes, we might as well use it as an opportunity to reform the tax system as well. So um, uh, I, I think the most distinctive part of the tax agenda is pushing for a carbon tax, both for climate change reasons and for budget reasons, and pushing for value-added tax, which is a, essentially a national consumption tax that every other country in the world has uh, except us. And those two would do a lot to close the fiscal gap in, in ways that would not hurt the economy much, if at all. You know, a consumption tax does not impinge on saving investment. Uh, a carbon tax doesn't uh, corrects the problem in the economy that we that the price of carbon is too low because it does not include the costs that carbon emissions impose on on society as a whole. And so there are ways to reform the income tax as well. You talked about going after sacred cows. Uh, I feel like we should get rid of the mortgage interest deduction. Uh, it does not do what people think it does, raise home ownership. Uh, it costs a lot of money. It's now extremely regressive. Uh, I think we need to let the 2017 tax cut, the temporary provisions of that tax cut expire. Uh, I didn't think we could afford them long term when we passed him. And, and uh, the situation uh, since then has only, you know, has only confirmed that in my view. Uh, there are changes we can make to the corporate tax to make it both more investment friendly uh, and more revenue producing. Uh, the the cuts in the 2017 Act, um, uh, I, I think some of them were not well advised. And finally, uh, tax evasion in this country is an enormously uh, under-discussed phenomenon. Uh, there's about $600 billion a year that goes in unpaid taxes. Uh, one out of every six ta- dollars in taxes that are owed are not paid. And we, we know generally where this money is. It's uh, sole proprietorships, farms, uh, rents, and extremely high-income households. Uh, but we have not equipped the IRS with anything near what it needs to enforce the system. So uh, we could rein in a decent amount of revenue simply by giving the IRS the resources uh, to enforce the tax system better. Let me let me you kind of uh, uh, agreed on that point. And um, uh, the IRS has been kind of detoothed, defanged for a long time. I want to go back to the VAT, though, because I think it's a really interesting one. And uh, people will argue about the levels of income taxes, whether it's regressive and so forth. People can argue about the corporate tax, uh, how, how it'll affect. We have a, a live experiment going on right now with a recent tax law change. But the VAT, as you point out, is different. It's not used here. It's used everywhere else. And uh, given that, you know, a tax on consumption 
to me at a certain level makes a great deal of sense. Uh, but a, almost like every other silo and every other prescription, <laughs> uh, VAT is opposed on the both the, the far left and the far right in a way that Larry Summers very, very, in a very funny manner captured. Uh, you know, can you, do you want to summarize his, his witticism about it? Because it, it, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Sure. Uh, and, and by the way, Summers said this about 30 years ago and it's been one of the most prophetic statements, uh, in economics that anyone has ever made. He's, he, he was asked why the U S does not have a value added tax. And he said that liberals fear that it's regressive and conservatives fear that it's a money machine. And then he was asked, well, when will we get a value-added tax? And he basically said, uh, when liberals realize it's a money machine and conservatives realize it's, it's uh, regressive. Regressive. And, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, I think that captures the political feelings about the tax uh, very well. Uh, I don't think the political feelings accurately reflect the reality, though. So, for example, um, uh, countries that have value-added taxes uh, have not inexorably increased their their revenues over time. Um, they've been fairly stable the last 20, 30 years. Uh, likewise, the VAT itself is regressive, but there are policies that can accompany it like uh, rebates for low-income households or spending. Or just very low income taxes for low-income ta families. Exactly. Like it's at a higher threshold that you start paying income tax at a, at a higher level, and that offsets the, the regressiveness of the VAT. Exactly. So there are ways to offset. The VAT itself is regressive, but there are ways to have policies uh, combined with it that offset that, in fact, even enhance the progressivity. That's basically what European countries do is they have uh, larger social spending than we do and financed in large part by value added tax. And have you, again, I'm, I'm keen on this sentiment of the time, any change in, it's been 30 years since Larry Summers said this, any change, uh, diminishment or improvement in terms of the prospect of a VAT? I, I get the sense that it's dead even before arrival, even though from my perspective, it actually makes a fair amount of sense. And as you said, it is common pretty much everywhere else in the world. Uh, but th there is no support in the United States for VAT. Is that is that a, unfortunately a fair statement? Uh, it it it's sort of like the Voldemort of the tax system. Like nobody will say its name, but uh, uh, there are there have been numerous proposals by Republicans and Democrats and bipartisan commissions over the last decade that basically take a value-added tax and call it something different, like a business transfer tax or something like that. So one of the nines in Herman Cain's 999 plan was actually a value-added tax. Uh, Paul mm -hmm. Ryan proposed a value-added tax. Uh, uh, the, one of the deficit commissions, the Nundam Energy Deficit Commission, proposed a value-added tax. But nobody calls it that because, uh, uh, you know, uh, if you call it that, then People fear it's the instrument of European socialism. Right, call right. It a business transfer tax or a consumption tax, then all of a sudden it's a right-wing, uh, pro-investment, pro-saving uh, tax. So it's got right. a problem with the name, but 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 even people who don't want us to head the way Europe is, has headed in terms of spending. Uh, 
admire the efficiency of the value-added tax. You're never going to get Joe Kernan to, to sign on for it for that very reason. It's the equivalent of uh, signing up for European low economic growth. I'm reminded of the comment by Lyndon Johnson when he saw Walter Cronkite uh, coming out against uh, the Vietnam War. And he said he's really he lost the battle when he lost uh, uh, Walter Cronkite. And, uh, you know, until someone publicly uh, and Herman Cain probably is not that person, but until, uh, you know, kind of popular conservatives uh, would accept the idea of a uh, of a VAT. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. And, and Joe Kernan is not there yet. So I, I unfortunately, I agree with you. Uh, you did point out though, you know, in the carbon tax, for which you have a separate particular uh, specific chapter, in a way, kind of a carbon tax is almost an industrial VAT. Is that an unfair summary of it? Or is it, you know, would you not want it viewed that way? Uh, that's interesting. Uh, that's an interesting perspective. I've never, I've never thought of it that way. Uh, it, it, it is a, a tax on the consumption of carbon, the way that a value added tax is a tax on all consumption. Uh, so it's effects in terms of being regressive, uh, would be similar to value added tax. But again, there are ways to offset, uh, to offset that that regressivity. I just feel like a carbon tax is such an important step that we need to take right now, not just for budgetary reasons, but especially for climate change reasons. Yeah. And I, I, it is that the logic of that is beginning to, not the logic of the tax, but the logic that is carbon, um, not just climate change, but carbon uh, consumption showing up uh, in everyday life. I, on my travel vouchers for my firm, the, the itineraries, uh, it shows the amount of carbon associated with my stay at a hotel when I travel on business. And I uh, uh, unfortunately travel uh, by plane quite a bit. And it shows each flight the estimated carbon uh, that, that that flight will consume per passenger. And these are big numbers. They at least get you to think about uh, your activities when it's presented to you in that way every single day. Right. And I think that's important. Just getting the issues in front of people and reminding them that these are issues, whether it's long-term debt or the need for more investment or, or the need to address climate change. Uh, uh, you know, we're all bombarded with information every day, uh, trying to get these, these ideas in the front of people's minds, I think is, is part of the political challenge. And, and, you know, it, you, you've outlined a huge problem and then you've proposed a huge solution silo by silo by silo. It almost seems enormous. And one is left asking the question, which you answer in, in your, your final chapters, you know, what can practically be done and to overcome the political challenge, which is the first step of overcoming the economic financial challenge. And you, you're, you, you have an immodest proposal and you want to, you know, how, how do we get the ball rolling? Well, this is it. You want to outline that. Uh, sure. I think the important thing, the most important thing is that we don't have to do this all at once. In fact, it's almost be impossible to do all these things at once. The amount of decisions that would have to be made uh, would, would just be overwhelming. But the basic idea behind fiscal therapy is it's kind of like physical therapy. You pick a problem spot, you work on it, you try to fix it. Then you fix another problem spot, you work on it, you try to fix it. And so I think this will happen. Uh, you know, the optimistic scenario is that it happens dribs and drabs over time. Uh, the pessimistic scenario is it doesn't happen at all. 
Uh, mm. But I think um, ultimately, I think there are two things that that you know we talked about the political problems. I think there are two things that will help guide the process. One is that fiscal sustainability is ultimately consistent with both conservative and liberal goals. Uh, conservatives want a financially sound government. Uh, liberals want an active government that requires resources. Uh, and the other thing is, as I talk about in the book and as people have discussed elsewhere, there are enormous benefits to fiscal reform. I mentioned using the necessary changes as an opportunity uh, to help grow the economy, help increase economic mobility and the, the plight of uh, low-income children and families. And so there, uh, uh, you know, eventually the notion that we can make ourselves better off by dealing with this problem uh, uh, will come to the fore, or at least needs to come to the fore. I know it's one way that you try to make it more palatable is, you know, through a commission that at least would, you know, a neutral commission in which the conservative members are chosen by the liberals and the liberal members are chosen by the conservatives. Right. Yeah. I, that was, um, you know, everyone, everyone rolls their eyes when you say we need another commission and, you know, Washington is littered with the history of commissions that, that, um, that nobody in Congress ever paid attention to after they were done. So I thought that there were, if we were going to do a new commission, I thought there would be two, two requirements to make it work. One is that Congress would uh, either have to vote on uh, the commission's proposals in an up or down manner, uh, or the commission's proposals would actually take effect. And the other is that, that um, you see this in recent commissions, you get the most- that, that, that means they can't ignore it. That right. is, if you don't vote it down, it's going to go into effect. Exactly. So, yeah. exactly. Uh, and then the other thing would be uh, on the commissions, you tend to get strident members uh, uh, on on the committee, the most conservative, the most liberal, and not surprisingly, they, they can't agree on much. And so I thought it might work better if each side picked the members of the other side that were yeah. on the commission is saying, look, these are the people that we can work with best or we feel most comfortable with or we trust the most. And that that, that might actually be a productive way uh, uh, to reach some sort of uh, agreement at the commission level. I thought that was that was rather clever. Well, I, I uh, wish you well. The book just came out in early April, so I, I don't know whether the feedback from Washington, given there's a lot going on in Washington these days, uh, but uh, it, it really is a challenge to our lawmakers, uh, and hopefully it will be addressed. The book is uh, Fiscal Therapy, Curing America's Debt, Addiction, and Investing in the Future by William Gale, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Bill, I want to thank you uh, for uh, chatting with me today, and uh, I, I really, I hope this book contributes to some some forward progress. Well, let me thank you for being on the show. I've enjoyed talking. Very good. Thank you. Take care. All right. Take care.